Our text this morning is from Micah 7, 18 through 20. You can find this on page 781 in the Bibles placed on the chairs in front of you. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham, as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. This is the word of the Lord. Excuse me, Ashton. You may be seated. Well, thank you for joining us. Uh, my name is Ransom Kent. I'm the pastor here. Thank you for those who are joining us online as well. Summer travel has begun here at Grace, and um, our folks for the first time outside the pandemic can join us online at their vacation homes, which I'm sure they're doing right now. Um, Anyway, we're in Micah this morning, and um, we're continuing our series in the Minor Prophets. Uh, as I was reading Micah this week, um, there are two moments where uh, God is uh, uh, represented as doing this certain thing with our sin. I'll get to what, what he does in a moment. Um, but as soon as I read these passages, it reminded me of a story from when I was a kid. And so I want to share this story with you this morning. Um, I was probably 10 or 11 years old, um, and uh, our family had a toaster. Yeah, that's the story. That's the end. No, um, we had a toaster, and this toaster was the worst toaster. And so if those of you who, maybe, I think toaster technology has improved, but for those of you who are Gen X or sooner, maybe you had the toaster that just would not stay down. So it was the whole thunk, pop, thunk, pop. You know, like hold it for a second, and it would stay, and then it would pop. And so we had this toaster. It would not stay down. And um, uh, my mom specifically had a really hateful relationship toward this toaster. And so I remember one day, and I experienced this story via sound. And so if you really want to get immersed, you can close your eyes. I'm not going to make you. Um, but I was in my room, 10 or 11 years old, playing with toys, and I heard mom get the toaster out of the cupboard. I heard mom plug the toaster in. You can hear these noises. I heard mom unwrap the bread, you know, like we always do, you spin it. I heard her get two slices of bread out, put it in, and then the chorus of thunk pop, thunk pop, thunk pop, thunk pop, thunk, it just went on and on. And suddenly, or, or uh, very quickly, after the series of thunk pops, they stopped. I heard mom remove the bread from the toaster. I heard mom unplug the toaster. I heard mom open the front door and head out to the front yard. And so uh, a few moments later, Dad and I uh, were down the hall. I don't know what he was doing, but we heard this hollow thumping sound, thump, thump. And so we decided we better go take a look at what's going on. And so we get to the front yard, and there's my mother. Uh, she is not angry. She has been enlightened, okay? My mother had a moment of enlightenment. She saw what had to be done, and she did it. She desired us to be free from this toaster, free. And there was my mother, uh, again, uh, not angry, uh, becoming one of my heroes, stomping the toaster flat in our front yard. She stomped it flat. Again, she wasn't angry. She just knew what had to be done. That toaster had to get out of our family. And for some reason, until it was destroyed, we kept it. We kept trying to use it. And so uh, what does that story have anything to do with Micah? Listen, twice in Micah, God is seen removing our sins 
from our lives and stomping on them. And stomping on them. He wants us, like my mom wanted us to be free from that toaster, he wants us to be free from our sin. And so what he does is he separates us from our sin, he takes our sin out, and he stops it because he hates it. And this is why I think Micah is hyper-relevant to us because every day, every hour of every day, you and I, we deal with what? Our sin. We deal with our sin. We sin. We, we, we sin in an ongoing way. Uh, I originally was going to have us raise our hands if these were applied to you, but we're not going to do that. But I want you to think about all the different ways you respond internally to your sin. I'm going to list some of them. So just kind of resonate with some of these. These are all true about me one time or another. But, but think about this. How do we react to our sin when we sin? Sometimes we run from God. We double down. We want to kind of hide that sin from God and keep it. Sometimes we beat ourselves up. Oh, man, I'm better than that. Sometimes we wallow in guilt, which is usually followed by deep shame. Sometimes we, we kind of follow our culture's uh, 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 passion, which is like this whole hashtag do better thing, right? Do better. Ransom, you can do better than that. And so you double down not on, on keeping the sin, but on ridding it of, your, of, of yourself and your own power. I'm sure there's other ways we react, but in these ways, and the way we react to our sin, I think it tells us something about what we believe about us and our sin. It tells us something. And in fact, it tells us that in some way, our sin has to do with who we are. It's our identity. And so if we look at Micah, the truth that Micah gives in his book, in these prophecies to Israel that are true about us, the truth that Micah shows us shows us how God deals with our sin. And I believe that it undoes the reasonableness of all those reactions. Shame, guilt, doubling down either way. Nancy Guthrie, uh, speaking of this passage, says this, this gospel, the gospel presented in Micah, explodes our categories for how God must deal with us in light of our failures. I'm going to pause there in the quote. It explodes how God deals with us, deals with us in our failures. And so in a declaration of hope, in this prognostication of the future for Israel, Micah is describing how God deals with our sins. How He feels about you. How He feels separately about your sin. She continues, she says this, trust Him. Trust God. Christ's record is yours because your sinful record has been removed by His suffering on the cross. God has cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. This is who God is. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. From, from Micah 7 and then a little bit from Micah 5, we're going to look at who God is and how He deals with us and our sin separately. Let me pray for us. We'll jump in. Lord, thank you for the times in our life where unbeknownst to us, your gospel is presented to us and years later, they spark a memory in our minds and our hearts and maybe it's a funny memory, maybe it's a hard memory, but in the end of it, you remind us of who you are through these scenarios. And I pray this morning that, that this sermon, this text, would be another reminder of who you are and who we are before you. So we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. And so as Micah is describing the future 
for these Israelites, he is describing our present tense. He is talking about a time that will come later for them, a time that we experience now. In this, in this time, in their future, in our present, God will stop on their sins and throw them into the sea. Now, take note. He's not going to stop on His people. He's going to stop on their sins. He's going to stop on the sins of His people. The first time we see this in Micah, and you can turn there, keep your fingers in Micah 7, Micah 5, 10-14 is the first time we see God removing the sin of His people and doing something with it apart from them. Micah 10, 5, 10-14, listen for the, the words cut off and root out. Cut off means to end, I think that's pretty apparent, but root out means to destroy. So listen to this from Micah 5, 10 through 14. Remember, this is God talking to his people what he's going to do for his redeemed people. And in that day, declares the Lord, I will cut off your horses from among you and will destroy your chariots. I will cut off the cities of your land and throw down all your strongholds. I will cut off sorceries from your hand and you shall have no more tellers of fortunes. And I will cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you and you shall bow down no more to the works of your hands. I will root out your Asherah. Now, Asherah was the female counterpart to uh, Yahweh, and this is part of Canaanite uh, religion, is they would bring in a female god, and it was all about fertility and all those kinds of things. So he's going to root out their Asherah images from among you and destroy your cities. There's three things. If this were a sermon, I was preaching, but I'm not going to. There's three things that God's doing here. What's he rooting out? First of all, their military might, their strongholds, their horses, their chariots. This is their own self-confidence, their own self-reliability. We can do it ourselves through our armies. God's saying, no, I'm going to remove that from you. He's going to remove sorcery or false religion and belief. You think these things are true, but they're not. So I'm going to cut them out, root them out. And lastly, idols, idolatry. Now again, this is not something he's doing to the world. If you go to verse 15, you see what he does to the people who aren't his people. But this is an active role that God is taking in the lives of his chosen and redeemed people. He's cutting out, rooting out their sin. He's removing the sin from his people. So we go back to, uh, forward to Micah 7. Micah 7, 18-20 is a beautiful description of God's role in our lives, and as it pertains to our sins. So first of all, look at verse 18. The first thing we can know that God does with our sin is He pardons it. He pardons iniquity. He, he forgives our sins. Look at verse 18. <clears throat> Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression. Iniquity and transgression are just fancy words for sin. For the remnant of His inheritance. He does not retain His anger forever because He delights and steadfast love. Look at this word, passing over. This should bring images of Exodus, if you're familiar with your Scriptures. In Exodus, what happens? God is redeeming His people. He sends the plagues. The last plague is a plague of death. And He says to them, believe that I will save you. And how you show that you believe is you're going to take a lamb, you're going to kill it, you're going to paint its blood over your doorpost. And those who proclaim their faith in God that way, the, the, the angel of death passed over their house. They did not experience that plague. And the same thing, you fast forward to Jesus Christ, this is a great image for what Jesus Christ does in our lives. If you go to, you don't have to go there, but you can read in Micah 5, 1-5, this is a prophecy of Christmas. Jesus Christ is going to be born in Bethlehem. He's going to come. 
And because Jesus was born, and because Jesus lived a perfect life, and because Jesus was crucified, died, and was buried, and rose again, our faith in Him is like blood being painted over the lintel of our lives. And our faith in Him is what causes God to pass over our sin, the very thing that causes us to deserve His wrath. Now, this is the method which, through which God issues mercy. And us Reformed folks, if we uh, love theology, we get this. There's no surprises in what I just said. Yes, we get it. God needed atonement. We know. We understand. But there's this other side to this that, that Micah brings out. And, and I, I go back to the book Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland, And he says it this way. He draws out, yes, there's this objective truth that God needed satisfaction for sin. But there's this other thing going on too. Listen to what he has to say. At the level of legal acquittal, the Father's wrath had to be assuaged. What a great word. In order for sinners to be brought back into His favor. So we understand that. God had to be satisfied. But at the level of His own internal desire and affection, He was e as eager as the Son for this atonement to take place. Objectively, the Father was the one needing to be placated. Subjectively, His heart was one with the Son. Do you hear this subtle other thing that we have to remember, church? Yes, God needed atonement. Wrath had to be paid. But the Son, even though it was terrifying to think of going to the cross and being separated from God, He did it anyway. Even though it was terrible for God to send His only Son, whom He had been in relationship with from eternity, even though that was terrible, He did it anyway. Why? Because He had this subjective heart for His people. He loves us. That's the key we miss sometimes. When we pound on atonement, which is true, praise God, we miss the love part of it. And look how Micah explains it. He shows us that we're separate from our sin. We are not identified with our sin. He says in verse 19, He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast our sins into the depth of the sea. God stomps on our sin. Notice, church, thinking of all those ways that we respond to our sin, God doesn't stomp on you. God doesn't stomp on me. We want to believe that so badly. Why? I don't know. But we do. We identify with our sin and we think, man, I've done it again. God's going to stomp on me. But no, what does He do? He removes, He cuts out our iniquity, He takes it out, and He stomps on it. For some reason, we feel this desire to be punished for our own sin. And Calvin and his institutes, he's talking about this passage, actually, and he's really stoked up. He's angry about this issue of punishment. The punishment of the people of God. Listen to what he has to say. To not remember sins is to refrain from punishing them. If God punishes sins, he puts them on us. If, God, if He exacts retribution, He remembers them. If He summons them to judgment, He does not keep them hidden. If He examines them, He does not cast them behind His back. If He looks upon them, He does not scatter them like a cloud. If He brings them forth, He does not throw them in to the depths of the sea. Do you see the truth? This coming clear through Micah. Micah is saying, you are not your sin. You are separate from your sin because of what Jesus Christ has done. Because of what Jesus Christ has done, God is removing one by one the sins from our life and stopping them flat. 
And so my mom, <laughs> in this moment, is like God. Not be, you know, I mean, sort of, but you know, um, she wanted us to be free from that toaster. It was a scourge on our family. God looks at our sin and He sees that it is a scourge on our life and He loves us and He wants us to be free from our sin. Those, both of those things are true. This is the process of God taking sin, cutting out, rooting out sin, and then stomping it underfoot. This is the process of sanctification, church. It's the, the word that means God's process in making us more like Christ. Suzanne Calhoun says it this way, sanctification is the ongoing supernatural work of God to rescue justified sinners from the disease of sin and to conform them to the image of, son, of His Son, holy, Christ-like, and empowered to do good works. That's what Micah is describing, this process of God removing sin from us and dealing with it. And so as we look back at our bad reactions to sin, shame, guilt, legalism, license, whatever our, our natural response is to sin, we have to look at those and we have to diagnose. First of all, any of those responses assume that we are inseparable from our sin. Think of it this way. License is saying, no, I don't need to get rid of this. This is who I am. That's what we do when we see a sin and we don't like that God says it's a sin, so we double down and we say, that's who I am. On the other side, legalism, it says, no, my holiness is who I am. And therefore, by my behavior, I will be identified. And so we work so hard to rid ourselves of this thing that feels like it's attached. But those two things and everything in between, listen, it's not true. We assume that our sin is our identity. That we're dependent upon that. And listen, because of this, we can dial that back a little bit. We can step back and see that, listen, in our sinfulness, in our broken understanding, what do we assume really is that God is only pleased with our perfection. Think about that. We assume that God is only pleased when we do everything the right way. What we can see from Micah is that God actually delights in the process of our sanctification, not our perfection. He delights in the process of, of showing us our sin and taking it out of our lives and then stomping on it. God loves that process because He loves us. This idea is communicated in probably the most famous verse in Micah. Micah speaking to the Israelites is saying, what does God want from you? Does He want sacrifice? Does He want you following the Sabbath perfectly? Here's what He says. He has told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Walking humbly is not a destination, you see? Walking humbly with God is a process, and God delights walking with you through life, even when you sin. And so the key truth, we've already seen it in verse 18, we've seen it again in verse 19, we see it again in verse 20. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers in the days of old. Verse 18 gives a reason for God passing over our sins. At the very end, he does not retain his anger forever because he delights, he delights in steadfast love. He will again, what? Show compassion on us. 
And his faithfulness and his steadfast love goes all the way back to the promise he made to Abraham, of whom we are now spiritual descendants. So why was Christ crucified? Certainly for our sins. Certainly for our sins. Christ was also crucified because God loves you and he loves me and he wants to be with us as people. He loves us. That's why. Why does God in our lives keep choosing to show us when we sin? Yes, he hates sin. But you know why he does that? Because he loves you and he loves me as his people. He shows us our sin out of love. Attentive love. God is not this rule-mongering, graceless overlord. Do it. Do it. He's not. He's a father. A loving father who delights in seeing his children shed their greatest enemy. At this point while I was studying, the, the phrase came to mind, and I'm going to start it, you guys finish it. God hates the sin, loves the sinner. Okay. Let's just do it real quick. Who's ever said that at some point? Let's just raise our hand. Let's just be real. Some of you have never said it. Liars! No, just kidding. I'm not, I'm not going to call you liars. Listen, many of us have said it. I won't say all of us. Many of us have said it. Now, let me ask you this. Who are we talking about when we say it? Who are we talking about? The world, right? We're saying, oh yeah, God hates that sin. He loves that sinner. Listen, you and me, that is true of us. It's as true about us as it is true about the world. God hates the sin and loves the sinner, Ransom Kent. That's what Micah is trying to show us. It's not just this thing they deal with. God has a people. He has made a way for us to be saved. And He loves us as His people. And He hates the sin that is still intermixed. So what is He doing? One by one, little by little, removing those things from our life and stomping them out. So, when we become aware of our sins and our failures, what should be our response? It should not be to beat ourselves up. It shouldn't be that. It shouldn't be to wallow in guilt. It's not the right response. It's not to wonder whether we're saved or not. Man, somebody who loves Jesus wouldn't do that. That's not the right response. It's not to run from God in fear. That's not the right response either. When we become aware of our sins, church, here's a two-step response one-step response for two reasons. When we become aware of our sins, we ought to respond in gratitude. What? Gratitude? Not because you got to sin. That's not the point. There's, there's two reasons that we should respond in gratitude when we become aware of our sins. First, God promises forgiveness. It's promised. It's not a carrot dangling out there. Well, if you do this and do that, maybe. No, he says, if you confess your sins, I will forgive them. He's going to what? Cast them into the depths of the sea. That's a great deal for us. And it's promised, it's for sure, through Jesus Christ. The second reason we ought to have gratitude is because by becoming aware of our sin, we're living out right now the great hope preached to Israel by Micah. We're living it out. God is not saying repent or be destroyed. He's saying, I love you. I sent my son to die for you. You are saved. I forgive you. Now, here's something that I don't like. Here's a sin that I hate. I love you. The reason we should be grateful when sin comes to our attention 
is because knowing your sin, seeing your sin, is God being lovingly attentive to his people. He's not aloof. He's not waiting for you to mess up. He's down in the trenches with you, cutting out, rooting out the thing that we need to be free from, our worst enemy. This is the life cycle of the sin of a saint, right? This is the life cycle of it. We, we sin. We will. We do. God shows it to us, not to rub our noses in it. See what you did? That's not what he's doing. What is he doing? In attentive love, he's showing us the thing that he wants us to have freedom from. In attentive love. And then he says, confess it fully. It's forgiven. And then by the power of the Spirit, what happens? We're turned away from it so slowly. It's the ongoing supernatural work of God to rescue justified sinners from the disease of sin. That's God's attentive love. So some of you this morning might be saying, well, Ransom, I'm stuck in a sin, and I don't know what to do. Here's the first thing. Remember, God loves you. Everything about the defeat of sin has to start right there. God loves you. Confess it. Why? Because he promises forgiveness. You can't do anything to out, outpace his forgiveness. And then, in this strange kind of unnatural thing, thank God for showing you your sin. <laughs> thank you, Lord, for your attentive love. That's going to put away all the beating up, all the wallowing, all the running, all the hiding. Thank you, God, for showing me my sin in a very practical way piece of advice from your pastor, partner with some brothers and sisters who will prop you up in the fight. We're in this together. So God is not bringing up our sin to punish us. It's not why God does that. He's not waving it saying, see, see what you did? No, he's bringing it up to destroy it. Why? Because he loves us with an attentive love. This morning, as we approach the Lord's table, I think it's appropriate to just take a moment after hearing what we just heard to observe the heart and the mind of God. Think about this for a moment. We just heard that God loves his people, he loves you. And as we become aware of sin, this is a moment. We should be grateful because God is not doing that to punish us. He's doing it in attentive love. And so this morning, as we come to the, the bread and the wine or the juice, we get an opportunity to remember, to observe again, the moment where the stomping of our sin was made possible. How is it made possible? How, how come it was a, a future thing for the Israelites and it's a present thing for us? Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, to make an atonement, to separate us from our guilt, and then to show us eternally that he loves us that much. So this morning, as you eat the bread, as you drink the wine or the juice, soak in that reality, that God loves you, that he forgives you, that he made a way for you to be rid, to cut out, to root out the sin in your life, to be free from your ultimate enemy. Why and how? Love, attentive love. So this morning, if you have confessed your sins, I hope all of us took some time to confess specific sins. There's nothing to be ashamed of before God. 
We can get detailed. We can get nitty and gritty because he knows. And guess what? He forgives. If you believe, if you've done that, if you believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation, you've made that public profession of faith, you've been baptized, you are called here by God's love, separate from your sin. Isn't that beautiful? For those of you here this morning that either you don't believe these things or or you have that sin, you're running and you're hiding from God and you're just not ready to give it up, uh, the Bible makes it clear that that you should choose not to participate. And so we echo that same warning. We ask that you uh, uh, make that choice this morning. So let's just one more time, let's take a time of silent prayer. Let's pray and ask the Lord to show us and reveal to us His attentive love as we participate in the Lord's Supper, I'll draw us back together with a prayer of blessing, and then we'll distribute. Father in heaven, thank you for revealing to us the nuts and the bolts of theology. You are holy. You are eternal. You're a triune God that created this world. You created humans to be most satisfied in you, and we we broke that trust. We broke that relationship in our sin. And, and, and the world was condemned, condemned itself. And yet, you came all the way to us. You sent Jesus Christ, the God-man, 100% God, 100% man. It doesn't make sense, but it's what you did. And he lived a perfect life. That also doesn't make sense, but it's what he did. He died an unjust death in our place. He rose again, conquering death, the devil, and sin, he ascended to be our advocate for those who have faith in Jesus Christ. Those are all the facts, but undergirding that whole story is your love for us. You loved walking in the cool of the evening with Adam and Eve. You loved sending Jesus in some sense so that you might be reunited with your people. You loved saving your people from Egypt. You loved every time every one of us has said, yes, I believe. Heaven rejoices in those moments. And so this morning, as we eat this bread and we drink this cup, I pray that we remember the nuts and bolts of what Christ has done. They're important. They're essential. But I pray also we remember the motivation, the love, the eternal love, the perfect love, the unstained love that is given to us, extended to us as grace in this time. Nourish us deep in our souls. Encourage us, empower us in our fight against sin. Thank you for stopping it and not us. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.